Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, the host of the Modern Mystic podcast, and today I am pinching myself and exuberant to be welcoming Sharon Salzberg to this conversation. Sharon is a meditation pioneer and true industry leader. She's a world-renowned teacher and New York Times bestselling author. As one of the first to bring meditation and mindfulness into the mainstream American culture over 45 years ago, her relatable, demystifying approach has truly inspired generations of meditation teachers and wellness influencers. Sharon is co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the author of 11 books, including New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, which is such a gem and a must-have. Also the author of her seminal work, Loving Kindness, and her newest book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, released recently in September 2020. Sharon's secular modern approach to Buddhist teachings is sought after at schools, conferences, and retreat centers, worldwide. And her podcast, which is fabulous, if you haven't heard it, check it out. The Meta Hour has amassed over 3 million downloads and features interviews with top leaders and thinkers of the mindfulness movement. She has also been a contributing editor to oh, the Oprah magazine, in addition to being featured in countless publications. Sharon, welcome to the Modern Mystic podcast. Well, thank you so much. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast, and I'm brimming with anticipation to hear your answer to the first question I ask each of my guests, which is, what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? <laughs> it, it's an interesting question. I, I thought about that for a while. Um, I think what it means to me more than anything is taking values and ideas that we might hold as important and precious in the abstract and making them real. That it's a lived experience of connection and interconnection, of spirituality, of um, finding depths of capacities, potential within ourselves for wisdom and compassion. But the emphasis in all of that is making it real. It's having a an experiential base for our views and, and the way we move forward in the world. Mm, so insightful and such an important nuance because I think that that whole idea of like experiential living and practices, because I know often in my experience in the spiritual mindfulness yoga world, <laughs> there can be a disconnect in the way of intellectualizing and, you know, philosophizing and then that bridge that actually takes those things into moment-to-moment, real-life, everyday experience. And sometimes for folks, that can be a chasm and a pitfall. It's so much of why I love your work in this world, and I'm so excited to keep diving into that. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's so important because otherwise it's it's something we consider or we think works for other people or maybe we'll get to thinking about when we retire, you know, or whatever. Exactly. And it's something that I think, too, for a lot of people, it's easy to think about these practices and even romanticize them. But it's really the, the mystic path and the mindfulness path and and really the path of self-awareness is how do we make our practices really serve ourselves and the people we love and the world in moment to moment, everyday life, as you stated so beautifully, with making them real, not abstract, but actually benefiting everyone. <laughs> so I wanted to dive right into a question, which I think is a gray area for a lot of people, which is what is the difference in your mind between mindfulness and meditation? Well, I think of meditation and it was always taught to me as a kind of skills training. It's not at all necessarily tied to a belief system and certainly not to a dogma or a kind of adherence to a set of beliefs, but it's, it's about skills of awareness, of balance, of connection. And the fact that they are skills means that they can be learned. So meditation is a way, it's one way of developing the skill of mindfulness. I would define mindfulness which can be and is defined many, many different ways. I usually define it as a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not so distorted by bias, like old fears or sense of shame or sense of isolation or projection into the future. Like that would be a very common one where we have discomfort in our bodies or we have heartache, we have disappointment. And right away, we start thinking, what's it going to feel like tonight? What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? And so we have all of this anticipation, which we are landing on top of what is actually happening in the moment, and thereby making it a whole lot harder to bear. So mindfulness means seeing those add-ons and being able to relinquish their hold. So we have a much cleaner, clearer view of what is actually our experience in the moment. And there are many, many, many ways, many realms in which to practice and deepen the quality of mindfulness. And meditation is a way to deepen mindfulness. It's one of the skills. And it is a very kind of streamlined, direct, immersive way in which to deepen that particular quality. And so I think of it sometimes, I think of meditation Sometimes it's like a little interlude of strength training. You know, it's like you're, <laughs> you're doing that and then you're going out with that, you know, with that greater muscle capacity. I love that metaphor so much because I think it's so relatable and so true. Like that's the, I say like the, the training for the marathon and then the life is the marathon. Right, that's right. <laughs> As a student and lover of words, I've always contemplated this word mindfulness and I always wondered, and I love your take on it, why the English term has come to really be this word for this practice. In many of the yogic traditions, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, it's called matrika shakti. And it speaks to the idea that words contain specific energies Mm -hmm. because of the intentions we infuse in them. And it speaks to 
Matrika Shakti, this term, the inherent power of language. So it's really, I like to think of it as like a nod and shout out to the practice of, of mindfulness in conjunction with the use of language. And so when contemplating this word mindfulness on one hand, one could interpret this term if taken quite literally as like full of the mind or thoughts, mm-hmm. which is what, of course, most people find so challenging about the practice in the first place, their fullness of thoughts in their mind. So what's your impression, please, of why this term is used for this set of practices and principles and has been quite mindfulness as opposed to, say, another nomenclature? Well, I mean, of course, a problem in uh, what you're describing is that these are all translations. Mm. And and so the word sati, S-A-T, Ti in you know Pali, uh, which is the language of the original Buddhist texts, um, is normally translated as mindfulness, and that's been the case I think forever. And so when I first went to India, which was more than a little more than fifty years ago, unbelievably enough, <laughs> um, you know, and then I started practicing in January of nineteen seventy one, and that was always the word mindfulness and there were a lot of implications to what it meant. I mean, for one thing, it was a compound. It was sati sampajanya, it's mindfulness and clear comprehension. Mm. Um, because the idea is not just like enjoying your cup of tea more because you're actually tasting it and smelling it and feeling the warmth of the teacup. Well, that is a really great thing and a very big change in the quality of our lives, the real jewel of mindfulness in terms of its benefits was considered insight or wisdom. You know, we get to take a look at our own minds. And and just as a side note, mind does not necessarily mean thoughts either. Mm-hmm. You know, in all of those Asian languages, uh, Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, uh, Chinese, the word for mind and the word for heart are the same word. Mm-hmm. It's the heart mind, and and so we say mind, and it conveys an image of cognition and you know and thinking and so on. But like I've seen Western people say, go up to a Tibetan teacher and say, I have to move from my mind to my heart, and the teacher looks like incredibly puzzled because what you just said was, I have to move from my heart mind to my heart mind, you know, in the way they hear it, and so. Um, That's also a problem. But anyway, back to mindfulness. Um, It was a compound. And so the real jewel of the practice was understanding our lives. It's like you get to look at all those emotions. You get to look at the things we have been taught are so strong and kind of valiant and independent, like vengefulness, you know. And you get to take a look at it and, and probably come to the conclusion, that's not so cool, really, you know. That's very confined. That's very limiting. That's that's burning. And you get to look at times when you feel tremendous compassion or impulse toward generosity or something. And maybe all your life you've been told that's weak or that's sentimental or that makes no sense if you want to be strong. And you get to look at it and you realize, oh, that is strong. It's stronger than most things. And, um, you know, that's not reflective of being kind of sentimental and gooey that's reflective of the truth of how our lives are intertwined and so it's got all the power of the universe behind it and and so understanding our lives is is really the key benefit and so 
um, to do that, to really say, be able to sit with an emotion that we are normally ashamed of or want to hide from and be able to sit there and, and be balanced and be present is not that easy. And it actually takes a good degree of self-compassion and kindness toward ourselves rather than judging ourselves and being harsh with ourselves. And that that heart quality is also implied in the word mindfulness because you can't be with your experience in that particular relationship without there being that kindness toward yourself in there, even if it's never voiced. And people struggle with that, with the word mindfulness, saying, well, it sounds so cold, it sounds so clinical, like um, like you said, you know, it's, it's just your mind. And so I've seen people in current times struggle with that and try to make up for that and, and suggest things like, let's call it kindfulness, let's call it warm mindfulness, let's call it loving awareness, let's call it, you know, and, and for me, it's very funny because all of those things, all those qualities were implicit, but, but really clearly part of what mindfulness meant. So I just call it mindfulness. Mm, what a gorgeous and revelatory and juicy answer. Um, so many layers to it. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, it's really interesting back to initially one of your first thoughts, which is the translation. Cause I know even as a yoga teacher and trainer that comes up a lot, mm-hmm. like how we are translating these words and it's really important. And that's part of, you know, our, transliteration and the dicey sometimes fine line when we need to really not culturally appropriate, but really honor that yeah. these practices are rooted in another culture and birth from another tradition mm-hmm. and get our minds around that. And then, yeah, internally how we can use this power of the matrika shakti because it comes from within, like when mm-hmm. we're saying mm-hmm. words, that power, well, what does that word mean to me? And so in ourselves and our minds, understanding and telling ourselves, you know, the narrative that makes sense and correlates to our hearts without necessarily changing the word, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's all another podcast, <laughs> yeah. you know, transliterating words and such, but I, I'm really big fan of really honoring tradition and not culturally appropriating things as Westerners and Americans. So thank you for that. And I love what you said about just how the, the mindfulness jewel of the practice really helps us understand our lives and understand our minds and our hearts. And as you alluded to that, that word, mind heart, I've even heard it. I don't know if you have, and I've spoken of this in other podcasts as mind body, like being one word um, in some dialects. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I had not heard that actually. Especially like with trauma, because trauma lives so much in our bodies. And so I just always thought that was interesting. So Well, it also gets kind of further refined in that body doesn't necessarily mean the physical body in those mm. systems of thought. It's kind of like the energy body, you know? Right. Of, totally. Um, chakras and uh, channels and the way energy moves throughout our body and very fine energy moves, uh, life force moves throughout our body, but it isn't necessarily like your elbow or your knee or something like that. Exactly. So no, such a profound point. 
And for those listeners listening, I've got several episodes on chakras and exactly what Sharon is speaking to, how there are many layers of self in these traditions, often five. And you can listen to several of my other episodes about the energetic anatomy. Specifically, episode 16, chakras, the rainbow bridge inside of you. I go into depth about these five layers of self and understanding regarding these as well as my Root Chakra episode 17 and Sacral Chakra episode 19. You can check those out. Um, but it's so true and really profound. You know, when, as you said so adeptly, when we use these practices and are brave enough and build a muscle enough to stay and be present to ourselves, which encompasses our mind, you know, that in my experience at least has been part of the great fruit and benefit is the understanding of oneself on every layer from my elbow to my energy, to mm-hmm. my trauma, mm-hmm. to my heart, you know, really these practices have this amazing capacity and in my mind, magical power to really delve into all layers of self, which is so much of the potency. Don't you think? Oh yeah. I mean, and it's not necessarily a common cultural value. It does take a little bit of bravery to say, you know, I think I'll just sit and look at my experience. <laughs> but the benefit's so great. Um, and I think it's so exciting how it's becoming so much more of a possibility and an interest of the collective consciousness. I mean, for me, I grew up in the yoga tradition since I was five. Mm. And I tell my kids all the way up through until I was a young adult, you know, these practices were very out there. Like they were not at all in the mainstream. And now, you know, they go to school in their gym. There's like a poster of like someone doing yoga and meditating, you know, in a yogurt commercial. Yeah. It's, it's so different. Or I came back from India in 1974 and it's so different. Well, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, how, how, what is the difference for you and your experience who've been in this tradition longer than I have? Well, I came back as a teacher because one of my own teachers, this woman named Deepama, had told me to teach. And, um, you know, so in those days in 1974 and around that time, like I would be at a party or some social situation and people would say, as we do, what do you do? And I would say, I teach meditation. And they would kind of give me strange looks and sort of sidle away. And occasionally somebody would say to me, did you meet the Beatles over there when you were in India? And I'd say, no, sadly, you know, they went when I was in high school. I didn't go until <laughs> I was in college. And, uh, anyways, different tradition. But um, And then I think in terms of mindfulness, largely as a result of the science and the research and the uncoupling of the meditative practices, the actual methods and techniques from the idea of a belief system, which was right um, to uncouple them. Um, Very commonly, uh, back when we were going to parties and, and such, if I was introduced as a meditation teacher, people would say, oh, I'm so stressed out, I could use some of that. Mm. Um, And occasionally also people would say, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it, which was of great concern for me because we don't believe you can ever fail at it. You might have 
an uncomfortable experience or a surprising experience, but you cannot fail because the whole point within the system is not to have a certain experience and hold it. The point is to develop a different relationship to all of our experience, the beautiful, wonderful, pleasant experiences, the painful, difficult, challenging experiences, and even those places that are neutral, repetitive, routine, where we normally kind of snooze or disconnect. We can change our relationship to all of those, and and that's what the practice is about. So, you know, the fact that anxiety came up where you had lots of thoughts or um, you got sleepy, that's not a bad sign. It doesn't mean you failed because mm. everything is going to be about how you relate to those things that that do appear. And so we believe you can't fail. And, and uh, so because I hear have heard that uh, so much, I think that's oriented a good part of my current work toward beginners, people who are just starting out. Mm. Oh, there's so many illuminating layers to what you just said. I want to start first with the most pressing and then work backwards. And it's pressing in my mind because I had a yoga and mindfulness studio in Center City, Philadelphia mm-hmm. for many years. And that is the number one thing that people would say to me and struggle with for sure. And so the listeners out there, I really would love to have you fully digest the this idea of that you can't fail mm-hmm. and there's really no bad meditation, quote unquote, or mindfulness practice because in my experience, it's about when we're able to be present with ourselves when the meditation or mindfulness practice feels great, when it feels, like you said, neutral, when it feels sucky, then that really transliterates back into our capacity to be present with those minutes in our moment-to-moment life mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we're with our families or friends or our kids. And to me, as you said earlier, with being a modern mystic, that's the whole point of this curriculum of life in my mind. So it's such a, such a really liberating thing and a gem of wisdom to share. So thank you. And I hope listeners really digest that fully. The other thing I wanted to just have you please unpack a little bit more is how the mindfulness tradition is connected to the yoga and or Buddhist traditions. As I said, I grew up in in a household. My mother is a very serious and great yogi. And so my whole life we went to ashrams and temples And then when I was a young adult, I was exposed to the American mindfulness communities. And it was so sweet. It was like a a coming home because there was so much overlap with the practices that I experienced and the way the ideologies. And so could you speak a little bit more about its roots? Because, and it's so ironic, when I was a kid and I would like share with a few select people, like I was a yogi, you know, when I was like 10 (laughs) and no one knew what this was and I felt safe enough to do so, people would all the time say, oh, you're a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And I'm laughing because people didn't ask me if I met the Beatles. Ultimately, like in my early 20s, it would be like, did you meet Sharon Salzberg? (laughs) Listen, people, this is how big Sharon is. (laughs) But truly speaking, if you could speak to the roots, because you know, it is so intertwined with Buddhism, which is so intertwined with the yoga tradition, which is so vast and broad. And I know it's such a big question, but in your mind, just an overview. And then also how you view 
and how the practices then can be considered secular, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. which means not religious for those listeners listening. Well, I learned practice uh, in the context of Buddhist teaching. And all of my earliest teachers, meditation teachers, were either Burmese or had themselves studied in Burma. Um, And my later teachers were uh, also Buddhists from different schools, Nepal, uh, Tibet, Bhutan, and so on. Um, So there's a particular way of languaging, uh, imagery, um, that is very much, you know, I've been practicing since I was 18, which was a long time ago, you know, so it's very much like home for me. And often if I'm asked a question, I actually do go to Pali and I translate back, you know, or something like that. Um, I think that the properties of mindfulness clearly are universal and don't have anything to do with a particular tradition. I think the Buddhist tradition uh, became very prominent as a conveyor of mindfulness for a number of different reasons. And part of that is the link to being secular. So my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. Uh, I entered a 10-day immersive meditation retreat in Bodh Gaya, India, January 7th, 1971. Mm-hmm. And um, the first night of that retreat, so this is really like a foundational instruction for me. You know, the first night of my first retreat, Goenka said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. This is not at all about becoming a Buddhist or having a sense of identity or any, you know, rejecting anything else. Anybody's welcome. These are methods, these are practices that will deepen your ability to be concentrated, mindful, caring, connected, loving, all of that, you know. So that was so foundational for me and really became uh, just an important part of my not only understanding but the way I teach. And and so sometimes people ask me questions like, what do I think of secular mindfulness? And I laugh because it's always been kind of secular for me, uh, given that first instruction from Goenka. Um, And, of course, one of the most famous statements of the Buddha is when he said, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything because I said it, because a great elder has said it, because you've read it in a sacred text. He went on to say, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And if this particular practice increases grasping and fear and anger and delusion, don't don't pursue it, you know. Mm-hmm. If it increases, you know, balance and peace and loving kindness, then that's something you can consider worthy of pursuing. But you decide for yourself. And and I found that like a breathtaking view of human potential and my own potential. You know, it was like, wow, you don't have to just like follow after somebody or or believe something. You have the ability to really see for yourself what's true, what's profoundly true about life. And uh, that became extremely important for me. And um, it doesn't really matter from that point of view what the context is or the languaging or the the approach. In fact, my friend uh, Jack Cornfield, who I co-founded 
the retreat center on the Insight Meditation Society with, uh, he uh, was in Thailand studying while Joseph Goldstein and I met each other in India and were studying. So Jack had this kind of parallel life in Thailand, and he had a very funny, wise, wonderful teacher named Ajahn Chah. And uh, at one point, Jack was getting ready to come back to the U.S., and he knew he was going to be teaching. And he said to Ajahn Chah, I feel really uncomfortable about teaching this stuff in the States. People were not born Buddhists, you know, by and large. And, uh, you know, the people that I'm likely to get to meet may have funny feelings about um, what seems a more exotic or esoteric approach to life. It's not their own. It's not what they're used to. So Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, well, call it Christianity. <laughs> and I was like, okay. You know, um, you know so that, that was like the flavor of which, within which I kind of grew up since, you know, I was 18, uh, not as young as you, you know, with, with my approach, but uh, young. And so I don't know that much except through friends, you know, uh, about the yogic traditions, but I think that if that is where one, for one reason or another, you know, finds this sense of possibility um, and methods that seem workable to you, you know, that are not out of reach, then that seems wonderful to me. Mm. <laughs> so, so many wisdom gems in there. I love that story about call it Christianity. I've never heard that. And that's so funny. And it's so, so profound, this teaching you're sharing, which is part of the encapsulation of being a modern mystic. Like, try it on and see, as you said, what works for you. So as you put it, it's so much about the possibilities and then what's in harmony and what yields fruit for you. And this idea, and that's why I want to ask you, is true in the yoga world, in my experiences as well, that a lot of the practices, I like to say, have the accoutrements you know, of the more religious traditions. And again, that's contextual because of where they were birthed and midwife from, but their practices and the goal is to look at your experience of the practices mm -hmm. and go from there. And it's experiential. And I think that's why the yoga practices as well as the mindfulness practices have really caught on like wildfire because of them really being about experience and people mm -hmm. realizing it's not like a religious cult. It's just methods and practices. And then if you want it to be, part of your more religious quote-unquote or you want to dub it spiritual you know it can be that too and your own religion if you have one can be blended with that and supported by it but it can also be secular and it's such a powerful understanding so thank you for that gift i'm curious as a teacher along these lines of the numinous realms however do you have students or what do you think of within your own experience, when you do practices and then people do have more experiences of the effable realms. Can you speak to this? Well, I think, you know, uh, if you don't completely 
decontextualize the methods from uh, the surrounding, you could say, philosophy or worldview. Um, you don't have to believe in the worldview, like many lives or anything like that, but it it hints at life being bigger than we usually grant it, you know, mm-hmm. that we live really on the surface of things and that uh, there may be many states of consciousness, the many ways of seeing the world that are much more nuanced, much more refined that we don't ordinarily access in a day, but we could. And so when it's a, a genuine experience, then I think it's just enlarging our sense of what life is. And, mm. and that's great. Uh, there's always a problem of getting attached and identified to an experience, you know, that doesn't um, negate the worth of it or the value of it. It just means we've added something extra, you know, Mm. and then we're going to suffer. Because when we hold on to anything as an experience, not for the way it has shifted us and and our priorities and our our perceptions, but we hold on to it as an experience, then we want it back. We don't always get it back, you know. things things all pale in comparison. Maybe we've moved on and we're having a really important and painful experience, but we don't like it because it's not that other thing or, you know, whatever it is. So attachment remains, I think, a challenge, you know, whatever level of our experience we're talking about. That's such an important point because it is so true that, I've heard that from so many students, you know, if we go into meditation and do have magnificent experiences, which the listeners who don't meditate, yeah, I guarantee you will, if you stay with it, (laughs) we'll talk about how to do that in a little bit. But, you know, just as you said, practicing them, this ultimate non-attachment, because just like life, it can't always be all those highs. Um, And if we do have experiences that are more quote unquote mystical of the the Mm -hmm. liminal spaces, then there's there's the practice, as you said, of the letting go of those as well, because mm-hmm. really that's not the goal, as you said earlier. And I wanted to speak about that as well, if you would be so kind, this idea of the goal, because you did mention a little bit earlier. And in yoga, there's this idea of spiritual enlightenment or quote unquote self-realization. And I know that idea exists in Buddhism as well. And so could you please speak to enlightenment and <laughs> you know how you consider this state? Is it really the goal of mindfulness? Is it, I love, you know, your the title of your book. I'm partial to that book. I just love it so much, Real Happiness. And is it that? You know, what what in your mind is the goal of the practice, if there is one at all? Well, enlightenment, too, means a lot of different things. One meaning of it, which fits right in with mindfulness, and in fact, one of my teachers, this man named Meninger, would say a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom, Mm. in that um, one way of seeing enlightenment or freedom is the mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion, or grasping aversion and delusion. And free of does not mean necessarily those those things are not arising 
It means that we're not relating to whatever we're looking at with holding on, pushing away, or, or getting diluted or muddled. So we may be looking at a state of fear. We may be looking at anger. We may be looking at greed. But we're not looking through the lens of adding, you know, holding on, pushing away, or or uh, getting confused. And so um, a moment of mindfulness by definition is just that. It's a quality of awareness where we are not adding, grasping, aversion, or delusion. So that's why they say a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. So our issue then is not that we never experience it, it's that we don't ex- tend to experience many moments in a row. You know, <laughs> it's a very, very fleeting experience, and we don't feel the power of it, and like the freedom of it, the the upliftment of it, because it's so infrequent. And so, our goal then is to add more moments in a row. And when we lose it, because we will, and we get overcome, or we get super reactive or we get exhausted, then we realize we can begin again. And we just go back to trying to add more moments in a row of being aware of in a balanced way, whatever Mm. our experience is. And so that's a nice meaning of enlightenment. Mm. Um, There are also meanings that are also significant, which seem to have to do with having experiences uh, from which there's no turning back. It's like there are things we come to know so deeply, experientially, um, almost on a cellular level, that we couldn't ever deny them again. That doesn't mean we live up to them all the time. Mm. You know, so um, another very famous statement of the Buddhas, echoed centuries later by Martin Luther King Jr., was um, from the Buddha. Um, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And I believe and I've seen you can have that kind of experience of knowing that so deeply that if anyone were ever to ask you, can hatred vanquish love? You'd say no. You would so know that. That doesn't mean every moment of your life you're loving, you know, or mm-hmm. or you never feel hatred um, or never fall sway to hatred, but you know so deeply what is true. And I think we have moments like that, and those are moments of enlightenment. Mm. So, so gorgeous. Just as you stated, to recap for the listeners, just going for the next moment and the next moment and just seeing how many you can do in a row. Mm -hmm. It's such, such profound wisdom and beautiful Dharma download. And I just want to circle back a little bit and accentuate as well for the listeners how you talked about grasping, aversion, and delusion. Those are concepts that are key as well in the yoga tradition. And they relate, as you stated, to this idea of freedom. And as you really so eloquently put, how it's not about being free of those moments. We're going to have moments, that's a guarantee, for the rest of our life, just like taxes and death and all the things we know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's about our relating to them and how we relate to them. 
And that's what the practices of mindfulness and meditation help us do, change our relationship on the inside with our moments on the outside. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for that beautiful answer. And it's a perfect foray into speaking about the benefits of meditation and mindfulness and inspiring folks, which is so your empowerment and superhero power <laughs> igniting the spark, um, I think, in newbies with your words and your books and your teachings. And, um, and also people who have practiced regularly, because I feel like there is this shadow in meditation and spiritual land where it's not really spoken of a lot, people falling off the bandwagon or people feeling like they can just be like, yeah, I stopped meditating. Maybe, in, I don't know, in your communities, if that's something people laugh about and are open about, but I'm in a community of a lot of people who teach and I think that they feel like they can't share and admit that always because that would make them feel somehow less mm. of an expert or less, I don't know. So I like to speak about that a lot, that like we, we can fall off the bandwagon and normalize that and that's okay. And then what are tips and technologies, you know, to support ourselves getting back on it into a, a better groove. Mm -hmm. So could you speak please to the measurable benefits of meditation and also tips to get back on the bandwagon? Mm -hmm. Well, from what I understand from the neuroscience, interestingly enough, um, the uh, brain will change, you know, because they're always popping people into fMRI machines and looking at their <laughs> brains under meditation. Um, your brain will change in the positive ways uh, from a, a regular practice of, let's say, 12 minutes or so a day of meditation. That's a formal, dedicated period. There are also people who study just moments of mindfulness, you know, when you decide drinking this cup of tea and I'm going to not multitask for a change. I'm really going to experience just drinking the cup of tea and not also be checking my email at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to sprinkle some mindfulness throughout the day, um, you know, doing uh, that. Um, a very famous one is from Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Zen teacher who said, don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Mm. Then you pick it up. Or I've had people say to me that they've gotten into the habit of not pressing send on the email they've just written right away. They come to the end of it. They take a few breaths. They read it again. You know, so it's just it's a very personal decision about which activities. None of them take very, very long. Uh, some of them may be things you do many times a day. And there are studies, not so much neuroscience, but other kinds of research going on in those moments. And those also seem to have a powerful effect. But the, the dedicated period um, each day, which is maybe sitting, maybe it's walking, maybe it's lying down, the posture doesn't really matter, doesn't have to be long to actually provide these measurable changes in the brain if that's you know uh important to you <laughs> as a sign of, of some transformation so i found that fascinating you know i've had uh, very prominent neuroscientists say things to me like 
seven to nine minutes a day will actually change your brain. Others go more toward 12 minutes a day. So I always joke and I say also in seriousness, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum, you know, Mm -hmm. but the point is it doesn't have to feel so overwhelming, you know, that I've got to sit like a pretzel for six hours a day or I'm not going to get anywhere. It's really not true. It, the transformation happens without that kind of um, intensity, you know, if, if that's not where your life's going to go and, and that's fine. Um, but the consistency seems to be the most important quality. It's the everydayness or three to five times a week is one neuroscientist friend said to me. And I said in response also, cause these things are very personal. I said, that would be harder for me than every day because if it was, say, three times a week, it would be Monday. And I know I'd start to think, oh, I'll start on Wednesday. And then it's mm-hmm. Wednesday, and I think I'll do it three times on Saturday and get it over with. <laughs> you know, But every day is every day. And so that is actually an easier kind of structure for me than others. And so um, the hardest thing is what we started talking about, actually, is putting something into practice instead of admiring it from a distance. I, I guess the equivalent would be carrying around your yoga mat and buying like the most beautiful yoga mat and <laughs> enshrining it in some way, but not actually getting on it you know, and, and doing anything. And that is the hardest thing of all is, is that moment of resolving to make it real. You know, the mm-hmm. benefit, it's tricky because really we – most prominently see the benefits not in, say, that formal, let's say, 20-minute period where we're sitting down to meditate. We see it in our lives, and and yet we keep looking in that formal 20-minute period for more peace, more calm, ability to let go, ability to begin again, more spaciousness, more perspective. Um And it may not be appearing there, but it will appear in our lives, which is where it counts. Because in the end, we don't actually practice meditation to become a great meditator. We practice meditation to have a different life. Mm -hmm. And to have, as you said, a happier life. Um, Because our own happiness, a sense of well-being, a sense of inner resource, a sense of wherewithal, can only translate into having a bigger effect on others in the world, um, caring more for others without getting so burnt out, being able to respond to the needs of others without being so exhausted. Uh, so our own happiness is not a selfish thing, actually. It's a very important ingredient both in resilience and in compassion. So being able to kind of build and strengthen that sense of inner resource is is a very precious and valuable thing. I've just seen so many people frustrated because they say my meditation practice has not changed and you know i still get sleepy and i still have this and i still have that um but the 10 or 15 or 20 minutes a day when you're formally practicing is not the place to look for change the place to look for changes in the rest of your life like how do you speak to yourself when you make a mistake and how are you meeting a stranger and how are you dealing with adversity and, and so on Mm, awe-inspiring really it's so true and thank you for that really important point because 
so many people really, I think, give up and get off the bandwagon often because of that. Because as you stated, they're looking for that benefit or aha moment or moment of comfortability in the meditation. And, and it's not always residing there. I like to equate it to taking a shower most of the time, hopefully, like if you don't take a shower, other people don't notice, <laughs> but you feel it all day if you have it and you wanted to, right? Like you feel it in your energy if you pay attention and it's with you the rest of the day. And it's so true what you said as well. And my understanding experience of the consistency, like better to be doing it for, in my mind, even one to two minutes a day compared to say once a week where you try to sit there and your knees are hurting for 40 minutes, you know, we're creatures of nature and building a consistency is so important. And I think really going at it from that angle can lead to much more success and ultimately, like you said, happiness, freedom, contentment and, and serving and supporting others because of that benefit. And I think that starting small like what's the smallest increment you suggest i mean I, i'll say to people do it a minute a day like people who are really struggling that would work i would probably say in terms of formal sitting i would suggest 10 minutes a day mm -hmm. i i would say if you're gonna do a minute i mean that would be fine that's just taking a few breaths yeah. and i would probably try to put that in activity you know like those moments after, like before a meeting, for example, or before a phone call. But it's fine if you want to do it in sitting. The reason I say 10 minutes a day is because in an ordinary day, you know, which is busy and full of responsibility and adaptation and all those things, if we sit for five minutes, that's usually the uh, kind of most distracted five minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, oh, I forgot to call so-and-so, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. What's that sound? I think it's the refrigerator. Maybe my refrigerator's broken. I don't know what to do about it. You know? And so that will, that's fine. And even just sitting through that is a kind of stress release, And but it doesn't necessarily help us go deeper. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you can kind of get through that period, things will tend to settle down. Yes, yes, yes. I think that... There's like a warm-up period, especially if you start doing consistently, where like you said, you're you're somehow like digesting or unloading a lot of the, you know, stress and imminent tasks and pressing things. But then you you after that like meditation warm-up, you you start to be able to go a little deeper mm -hmm. and settle after a few minutes, and that can be really wise. I've also found that if you stay to a minute with people, then people come back and be like, oh, I actually sat for longer because yeah, most people, true. once they sit, it's just that, like you said, that that committing to do it as opposed to staring at your cushion or your mat yeah. or staring at the reminder in your phone to do it. And I love how you spoke about the brain scans, which people, of course, can Google and look at it, but it's fascinating, the neuroscience behind this. Like, check that out. Look at brain scans of people who've meditated consistently for six to eight weeks and more. And you'll see monks, mm -hmm. their brain is literally different and changed and transformed and really concrete insights such as greater calm, less reactivity, improved concentration, stress reduction, white blood cell increase to improve, you know, that improves your immune system, of course, and ability to fight things, improve sleep, all, all of these are things that people report meditation helps from the masses. 
standard types of benefits. And like you said, I love that analogy of just training. It's like a muscle. You just mm-hmm. start a little bit. You wouldn't go and try to lift, you know, a big amount of weight <laughs> when you go to the gym for the first time after five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so beautiful. Now, one of my favorite mindfulness practices, and I've heard you speak so incredibly about this. It's one of my favorite things I've ever heard you say. So I want to mention it today is about looking at each moment as if it were your first. And that's known as aka beginner's mind or Buddha mind. I've heard that said this practice. And then the second practice, which I was taught as a child, which was very profound for me. And you also speak of is about practicing each moment as if it were your last. I was taught on my birthday to think about that. And every birthday since I can remember, I do that practice. And it's really such, such an amazing game changer and perspective changer. And so in yoga, the word for these are called darshanas. They're like viewpoints, mm-hmm. taking on a certain vantage point and practicing this vantage point to, to gain greater insight and deeper understanding of reality and oneself. And they really help me at times stay in the present moment where life is actually happening. So much of our lives, our minds can be in the past, ourselves can be in the past or in the future. And that's another great benefit of the mindfulness practice that I've experienced, really really allowing myself not to miss the moments of my own life. And so I'm wondering, please, if you could share your unique take on these two practices of viewing each moment, either with a beginner's mind and or as if it were your last. Well, that was actually an instruction that um, one of my teachers, this man named Manindra, gave to me, you know, pretty early on, which was you should be with each breath as though it were your first breath and as though it were your last breath. And the immediacy that that opened up um, was was very strong, and also a quality of non judgment. You know, I I was uh, very judgmental when I went to India, and that was a big confrontation with myself. And you know, to sort of be doing introspection, which was basically for the first time. Uh, meant that a lot was revealed to me and a lot I didn't like, you know, like, uh, look at that anger. I never used to be angry before. It must be the fault of the meditation, uh, which of <laughs> course I had been usually angry, but I hadn't been aware of it. And so um, it was really crucial that I work on developing a greater ability not to judge and to have more compassion for myself and, and so on. And, and somehow that immediacy really helped with that as well because it's sort of like if this is my last breath it's like who cares you know <laughs> that, that you had a lot of thoughts this morning you know or or whatever and and so it's a very powerful technique which obviously can be applied at any moment because there's also a truth to it you know it's not just fantasy um it can be approached life can in this moment's experience, whatever it is, as though it were the very first time we were experiencing whatever, that cup of tea, that um, view. And it's also true that we don't know. Life is so fragile. And that tendency to postpone feeling alive until something great happens um, is it's a common tendency and it's a real problem and it it doesn't have to be that way. Mm, 
So beautiful. And I think it ties back to what you were talking about earlier. You had mentioned those words um, as part of the Buddhist tradition that help support our continued suffering <laughs> sponsor. They sponsor our suffering often, which are, you know, grasping, you mentioned aversion and delusion in the yoga tradition. Those, those words are raga, dvesha, and upadana. Upadana is definitely a Pali word as well. Um, the other two, I don't know if they're shared, but I do know that um, so much of Buddhist philosophy and ideology and semantics are shared with yogic words and they're, they're key concepts as well in yoga tradition. And I think that as you stated so beautifully with your understanding of these practices, they help us become more liberated from these tendencies of grasping, of, of avoidance, which is aversion and delusion, which is not, you know, seeing what really is. So thank you so much for, for all those teachings. One of your signature, in my mind, <laughs> practices, and really in the mindfulness community as well, I've seen it often, but you're such a master of it, is talking about and sharing teachings of metta. Mm -hmm. Metta is the word, my understanding, loving kindness, and this practice of cultivating compassion, which is called karuna in Sanskrit. So these core foundational practices within the mindfulness community in yoga traditions and Buddhism, can you illuminate for our listeners, please, what they are? What's metta? What's loving kindness? Almost buzzwords now. A lot of people really seem to know them outside these communities. What's compassion or karuna in your mind? And how can they benefit ourselves and others? And how do we practice them? Well, metta uh, in Pali, again, um, Maitri in Sanskrit, uh, it's spelled M-E-T-T-A. It's got two T's in it. Mm -hmm. And the normal translation is loving kindness. I these days tend to use the word connection as the translation, partly because loving kindness is still a somewhat strange term. It doesn't necessarily reflect to us any understanding about day to day life, you know? <laughs> it, it just feels very removed and arcane. And I've had mm -hmm. translators and scholars uh, come up to me and say, just say love. Stop being so cutesy. You mean love. <laughs> but love is so complex a term for us, isn't it? It's, it could well, and be I just, please, when I interject, like I'm just laughing at the irony of, of what we do as humans, like mindfulness, like all the students are often saying like mindful, my mind's too full, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then we have loving, loving kindness and people are like, that's too nice. What's that? Yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> true. So, uh, <laughs> I, I tend to use connection because the idea is not even necessarily an emotional state, although it might be, but it it's almost like it's a profound knowing that our lives are intertwined, that our lives have something to do with one another. And it's quite different than liking somebody or approving of their actions. It's, it's really that kind of bone deep realization that our lives are, are interconnected and, it's the heart's response to that. So metta is uh, loving kindness. You could say it's a sense of generosity of the spirit based on recognizing how everybody actually wants to be happy. Everybody wants a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling at home somewhere. And it's because of the force of ignorance of, of not really understanding where happiness is to be found. 
that were really kind of led astray, but um, that recognition of our connection is loving kindness. And it's usually taught in a bundle, you know, it's part of a bundle of four qualities, uh, loving kindness being the first, the second being compassion, which of course we use uh, as though it's the same word as loving kindness or love. Um, in these contexts, it's, it's very similar, of course, and it, they're very supportive of one another, but whereas metta might reside in recognizing everybody wants to be happy, compassion more resides in recognizing how vulnerable everybody is. It's not that we share the same degree or, or type of pain, because clearly we don't, but we're all so vulnerable. Life is so fragile. It can change. I mean, look at where we are in this in this world right now, you know, and mm -hmm. things can change so quickly for anybody. And that should help us feel closer to one another and more caring for one another. And so compassion has a little bit of a different flavor than loving kindness because we're we're resting on that understanding of, of vulnerability of fragility that we share. So it's got a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe more poignant mm. quality. Um, the third aspect is sympathetic joy, which is actually feeling joy or happiness and the success or good fortune of someone else instead of feeling um, so jealous or envious. And then the last quality after loving kindness and compassion Sympathetic joy is equanimity, which for us often implies coldness or indifference, which it doesn't mean at all. It really means balance. And in this context, it's balance born of wisdom. So it's like perspective. It's like looking at your friend who's having a really hard time and realizing I will do everything I can to try to help and I'm not in charge of the universe. That's wisdom. I can't make your decisions for you. That's wisdom too. You know, and and we always want wisdom to accompany our compassion. Otherwise, we just burn out. And it doesn't take away from the flow or the power of, say, loving kindness or compassion, which is our fear. But it it actually enhances it because then we can hang in there you know, through the ups and downs and not getting what we want and, and not, you know, feeling so successful at kind of ordering happiness into someone's life. Um, it, it's really a big asset. Mm, so fascinating. And for the listeners who are established in the yoga tradition, the Sanskrit words for the other two qualities, Sharon was mentioning cultivating our mudita, the, the sympathetic joy, and upeksha, which is that equanimity, or I've heard the translation like the eagle's perspective, almost like when we were talking about the practices of seeing things as our first breath or moment of our life or our last, that upeksha, the quality it brings. Mm, so, so amazing, really, and so applicable to our day-to-day -day lives. And I'm sure our listeners can feel that and are inspired to do that and really have now 
a deeper understanding of how these things can actually be infiltrated and skillfully leveraged into our moment-to-moment, awake, day-to-day practices of living in this curriculum of life. Sharon, would you be willing to punctuate this conversation with a short mindfulness practice so our listeners can feel in their body the magic of mindfulness? Sure. Thank you. If you want to sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or not, depending on your circumstance, depending on what feels comfortable for you. We can start by listening to sound. It could be the sound of my voice or other sounds. And while, of course, we like certain sounds and we don't like others, see if you can allow the sound to wash through you without chasing after it to hold on or push away. Just let it come, let it go. Bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. You can feel the earth supporting you. Feel space touching you. Usually we think about touching space and we think about picking up a finger and poking it in the air. But space is always touching us. It's already touching us. Bring your attention to your hands and see if you can move from the more conceptual level, like of fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. Bring your attention to the feeling of your breath, just the normal, natural breath. On this same level of feeling sensation, wherever you feel it most clearly, maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen, you can find that place, bring your attention there and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. without concern for what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath, just this one. And as images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, if they're not very strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of the breath, let them flow on by your breathing. It's just one breath. 
something picks up, however, it pulls you away. You're lost in thought or spun out in a fantasy or you fall asleep. Don't worry about it. You can recognize that you've been gone. See if you can gently let go. Bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. So we let go and we begin again. No matter how many times you might have to do that, it's perfectly fine. When you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze, and we'll end the meditation. Mm, that was such a luscious and exquisite taste of mindfulness medicine. Thank you so much. Love what you said. Space is already touching us. <laughs> just like the mindfulness practices are already around us. It's just feeling into them, like Sharon said, space, feeling to space that's there. <laughs> mm. well, I'm so thrilled for my Patreon supporters, as Sharon is so generously offering a beautiful, free, cultivating equanimity mindfulness practice. That's an audio form to donors at all levels. So head on over to my exciting Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash modern mystic love and support my work at the five, 10, 30 or $50 levels and get monthly yoga and meditation videos and tons and pounds of freebies and discounts for my incredible guests like this mindfulness meditation MP3 from Master Mindfulness Teacher Sharon, so much goodness waiting for you over there. So for everyone who visits my Patreon page, find a free PDF detailing these concepts, the bundle Sharon mentioned of practices in moment-to-moment life of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, of equanimity, and notes regarding these wisdom gems that really can transform one's day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience of one's life. Also, Sharon, I want to just give you a little shout out and congratulate and honor that you just had your 45th anniversary, it seemed like, of the Insight Meditation Society, Mm -hmm. which is really a meditation landmark in the U.S. that you co-founded with Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. 
So congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. Went by really fast. (laughs) Well, people can, you know, Google that amazing place. And um, also, Sharon, where can folks find out about your incredible work in this world and find you? Uh, Probably the easiest thing is my website, which is just SharonSalzberg.com. SharonSalzberg.com. And check out her podcast, which is fabulous. And I listen to regularly and a very few that I actually listen to with my three kids learning at home uh, <laughs> these days. But definitely that's not to be missed. <laughs> and her books, that book, my favorite is Real Happiness, which is a 28-day program, right? So to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And I, for years, for over a decade, have been recommending that book for people. So definitely check that out as well. I highly recommend it. Sharon, thank you so much for being such a force and source of sharing mindfulness practices in such an accessible and potent way in this world, inspiring generations of teachers and practitioners like myself. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please write me a review on whichever platform you are listening. Also, check out my exciting Patreon page at patreon.com slash modernmysticlove, where I offer all sorts of uplifting yoga classes, meditation classes, and other amazing offerings from my guests on this podcast to all my incredible supporters. Even folks who donate at the $5 a month level are so appreciated as every cent helps this busy mama of three. Or check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can purchase yoga videos of all levels with me, ranging from gentle yoga up through advanced asana, and also meditation videos there. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste.